0: Additionally like the whole old song goes, the waiting is the hottest part. Exactly. Exactly. Um.
1: We have to have a song in every
2: episode. I love it. Continue. No, you're totally fine. I like it. I like it. Got to keep the fun in.
0: C Lab, the customer education lab, where we explore how to build customer education programs, experiment with new approaches, and exterminate the myths and bad advice like the roaches they are. I'm Adam Evermescu. And I'm Dave Darrington. And happy National Ride the Wind Day. Are you ready to ride the wind with us? Where did this one come from? This is just
1: ride the wind.
0: Yeah. um, Maybe it's like hang gliding.
1: Oh, okay. Hang gliding kites. Or... No, a yeah, of, or as like my uh, like grandpa made out of a potato sack that literally lifted me off the ground. So there you go. That's qualified. impressive. Okay, wait, yeah.
0: Dave. I have I have a late breaking update. This observance commemorates the anniversary of the first human powered flight to win the Kramer Prize on August twenty third, nineteen seventy seven, when the Gossamer Condor two flew the first figure eight course specified by the Royal Aeronautical Society in Shafter, California. Cool. That's what we're celebrating. All right. How to observe it? Take to the air. Take to the
1: air with certification. And in our last episode, Adam and I broke down the topic of certification, right? So we're hoping for this community, for our audience, and again, we're focused on customer education, startup SaaS, we're a little earlier into the curve of building content. We want to make this relevant to those of you who are thinking about certification for the very first time, or maybe you've, you've seen it, you've heard it know a little bit, we want to help you clear it up. So if you haven't listened to the last episode, and I believe that was episode 22, uh, check that out first. And today, what we're going to do is go a little further. So again, certifications can become a pillar of your customer education program, but they can also be really daunting. Now, now how, let say that again. How do you go about thinking and building the right certification program for your business? So today, we're gonna to welcome Evan Luberda. Welcome, Evan.
0: Thank you. Welcome.
1: Uh, Evan, uh, I'll let you introduce yourself and give us a brief bio or a background on, on where you're uh, coming in from and how you got into this world of customer education. Um, so let's, let's let you go on ahead. Tell us a little bit about your background, where you've been, where you are now. and. Uh, then we'll get into some questions for you on certification because I know you've done a lot in this area.
2: Yeah, yeah. So uh, first off, thank you, Dave. Thank you, Adam, for having me. I really appreciate it, guys. Um, So as Dave mentioned, I'm Evan Luberta. I'm uh, now an instructional designer here at Outreach, but I started my career over at Gainsight, helping to build out a lot of their education. The entirety of their platform kind of really started with some ideas that uh, the original team kind of had that we kind of built upon. And and as we kind of went through and did that, I kind of lived every single role you could live in the training world for the most part, and then finally kind of ended out my career over there by building out the certification entirety uh, from all the way from the platform to building the actual content of it to really getting it released and making sure that it was available for people to take. So I kind of went through the entire journey uh, myself.
0: So that's kind of where I come from and what it is that I can bring to this conversation. Well, we are so happy to have you here, Evan and to hear about your experience. Um, you know, last time we talked about certification in the previous episode, we talked about it in terms of what is the business value of certification? What audience were you trying to reach? And uh, how did you set the stakes for the exam to, uh, to match what you were trying to achieve? And, and finally, how did you actually get into creating the content and the questions for it? So we'll, we'll try to parallel that as we, uh, as we walk through with you today. But we would love to do that in the form of questions for Evan. So Evan, you ready to go? Sure am.
1: All right. Cool. Let's frame this up. And again, Adam, we were thinking this would... Really good, do a good job as paralleling what we talked about, paralleling words are hard. Uh, what we talked about last episode and kind of going along. Hey, let's start with business value. So starting from the beginning, in the last episode we challenged the assertion, or I think you you said before Adam interrogating the notion. Uh, <laughs> I love interrogating the notion. I do too. It's it's crazy. Um, <laughs> here's some good. Out- <laughs> um, so so the hypothesis was. I should design my certification program based upon how my peer companies do it, right? With that said, we've proven that, we think we've proven that false, that each company makes different assumptions about how to set up their program, what's valuable to them, what their business rationale is for having a certification program, etc. So our first question to you, Evan, is how did you go about – Getting your business requirements, getting the the, uh, the background and why, what's the reason, what is it you're trying to accomplish with the certification program? So, you know, where where do you start from? How did you get into this? What were the requirements? How did you get the program off the off the ground?
2: Yeah. So. Really what it came down to is, first of all, I mean, kind of like how Dave mentioned, you really need to make sure you have a goal set up in mind. And so at Gainsight, our goal came into the fact that there is a high demand for admins for the product. A lot of people really want to work for, work with the software. And the thing is that becoming an admin of Gainsight can sometimes be a bit of a daunting task. It can be a lot of work, but there's a good job market available for it. And a lot of the time, anytime you're working with any kind of certification, it's because an organization probably has something that you're going to want to work for. And you want to have a essentially something that proves you know what you're talking about and what you're doing. Because if you can take that information and prove to a potential employer that you can indeed actually do what it is you're saying you're doing, it gives you such a high level of credibility that it really just makes you a much better candidate most of the time and gives you a better shot at scoring that job that you're really looking to get. So basically to wrap that all back to what I initially said, the whole concept of it was we needed to make sure that the people that said they were admins of our product could actually prove that they actually had that skill set that evolves. And that was the initial kind of goal. And then from there, the idea kind of broadens into what does that mean? How many questions do you need to go through with this? What format are your questions going to be in? What kind of design for you going to do for your test? And I know we're going to talk about some of those things as we kind of go through today. So I won't jump into all of that right here at the beginning, but ultimately it's that initial goal, that initial metric or idea that you have is what you can kind of build the entirety of the system around.
1: So question for you then on that is, so was it the business leadership came to you and said, Hey, Evan, we've got to solve this problem with admins. What, what was the, the ask from leadership for the certification program from the beginning? So a lot of the times I've noticed
2: that the ask is just get it. (laughs)
1: <laughs> People just, I, I mean, it just sounds... do this? That, yeah. That's what you're, you're given? And.
2: and so a lot of the time it comes down to, you know, certification. Uh, I'd put it in quotes, but you can't see my hands. Certification is that thing that comes around that it's like, when you have that, you've made it. Like, you're on your way to IPO. You're on your way to being the best company there is. Like, a certification is a mark of success in the industry of tech. And so a lot of companies look at certification as a, we need it because... We have else to, is doing it? Exactly. Like it's, you know, they don't want to be left out. It's FOMO almost. You need to make sure that you have a certification so that you can say you're one of the big tech people that can do things. So people will approach the idea of like a certification is needed. I would argue that there are times in which a certification may not be necessarily needed for specific products. Um, I think for what we're talking about, though, let's go into the assumption that a certification is really good for any organization that could have it as long as you come up with that idea. So to kind of answer your question, Dave, uh, our executive team said, hey, we really want to get certification. We want to get it launched because we know it's important to do, and we think it can be beneficial to our customers to be able to prove that, but... How do we do that? Who do we do it for? And then me and the team essentially took that idea and said, well, you know, there's different users of almost every platform. Some platforms utilize SDRs and CSMs. All platforms utilize admins. But depending on the kind of software you're working with, you're gonna have different roles that are working with it. And for Gainsight, as I mentioned before, the administrator's job is often one of the more difficult ones. So because of that, we wanted to make sure that they had a way to prove they had those chops and those skills. And so that's what led us to make the decision that our certification should be based off of that specific role. And other companies may find other ways to approach it, but that's what we found to be the most helpful, was to assign it based around the idea of a specific role and specific skill set that's developed by having that role. Very cool.
0: Um, Adam, do you have any questions uh, for this? Tag team. Yeah, I guess, you know, coming on the theme of, of the business value of having an admin certification, I'm curious, aside from being, a, a, you know, a stamp of pride for admins who could, quote unquote, do it the right way. I like to make my air quotes verbally. We see them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> were there other metrics that um, your team was looking for when you were thinking about building the certification in terms of what needle you wanted to move in the business or yes. for your customers? Um, so sorry
2: to cut you off in there, but yes, there definitely were other
0: metrics that we were looking at. Uh,
2: outside of us just wanting to make sure that admins could prove they had the chops, we wanted to make sure that uh, adoptability kind of went up. As I mentioned, uh, for any of you that may have ever used Gainsight, Gainsight can be tricky to use on the administrative end. And if you're an admin that's working through everything, and you're trying to you know, make sure you're able to go and do those things, if you're a company that's bringing on a new software that's incredibly tricky, be it Gainsight, be it any other company that might exist, if you don't know how to correctly implement it or if your implementation is going to take a long time or you're going to run into issues along the road there, that's going to be a big concern. But if you're able to bring in someone that has those technical chops and has a a form of documentation that confirms that they have the chops that they need, it can decrease the amount of onboarding time, it can increase how well your reps are doing or how any of your customers are doing, and it can ensure that you kind of have a higher health score at launch, and then that health score kind of keeps green instead of dipping. So ultimately, it could possibly reduce churn as well. So that was kind of the initial idea of, those are the other metrics that we could
0: measure by making sure we had basically increased the successful administrator pool. I, I love the idea of being able to look at when, when an admin gets certified, what are the effects on, on the health of their account throughout the lifecycle. So you're, you're actually telling a really interesting story there about how a certified admin will benefit the account throughout the lifecycle, which is cool.
2: Yeah. And I wish I had that data I could share with you guys. Unfortunately, I don't know the exact answers on it, but I agree. It would definitely be something awesome to be able to look in and see the trends that happen with that.
1: Yeah, this goes back into our conversation with data. Data is everything in the lifeblood of customer education, particularly in SaaS, because unlike perhaps some industries that might not have a lot, we've got. Oh, there's my word again: telemetry, product usage, adoption, all that kind of stuff. Well, that's cool. So, so let's uh let, let, let's shift gears a little bit, though. Adam, you want to lead us into the next subject area?
0: Yeah, and actually, before we we go wholeheartedly into. You know, what are the qualities of of those admins thinking about audience? I am curious in terms of the metrics and the business goals. There's an idea in the world of certification that certification metrics are are an iron triangle of reach, revenue and impact. And that's something that we talked about in the last episode. Mm -hmm. So revenue, of course, being revenue, you know, you can have a revenue generating certification program or not. Um, reach, of course, being how many admins, in your case, were, were getting certified, and impact being uh, what you described earlier, which are, you know, what are some of those downstream effects of a person getting certified. I'm curious, um, as you were developing the program and as you were talking to other stakeholders in your business, how you prioritize those three pieces of, of the certification metrics iron triangle.
2: Yeah. So I mean, as far as the three different sections of that triangle go, it's almost kind of one of those things that we almost had to pick uh, basically, I mean, a corner, I guess you could call it, of the triangle that you want to go for. Having a profitable certification can oftentimes be really tricky. There's a lot of overhead costs that go into a certification via proctoring, whoever it is you're going with. And I'm sure you guys have discussed some of that, so I won't go into too much detail. But, I mean, if you look at, like, kind of statistically, there's not a ton of different companies that have managed to have a truly profitable certification. Uh, Most of the time, until you get, like, very, very large, it's harder to kind of reach that point in time. So we kind of uh, avoided that section, corner, whatever you want to call it, and kind of moved towards the others. So we kind of took more of an approach on the reach, because like I kind of mentioned before, that was really our our goal, was to increase the amount of administrators that were able to utilize our platform fully. Mm -hmm. So we looked at reach, and we tried to build that out as much as we possibly could, because the more people that they were, the easier implementations would go, and then a trickle down effect to, theoretically, the higher health scores and higher success of all of our customers.
0: Cool. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So then that that actually takes us beautifully into our next section, which is really around audience. So you mentioned you wanted to focus specifically on admin because of the effect that they could have, uh, you know, by, by having successful admin uh, implementing and managing Gainsight, you would theoretically have uh, higher benefits across the organization, but it also seemed like one where you had enough rigor around what an admin is supposed to do that it made sense to certify them and to, to hold them to that. So I guess I'm curious, um, when you think beyond just that role, were, were you certifying um, other groups as well? Was it just customer side admins? Or, or were there partners involved? Or were you also certifying like your internal CSMs to be admins? Uh, who, who else uh, kind of benefited from this?
2: Yeah, so ultimately, I mean, that's a great question to kind of go into this and a great way to transition to the idea that uh, the administrators are really the, I'm going to say top brass, basically, that when it comes to most softwares, without a successful administrator, you're going to have a hard time implementing or really working through most anything in the tech and SaaS world right now. So because of that, we definitely wanted to make sure that this was something that was going to be just as efficient internally as it would be externally. So while we wanted to make sure that, yes, every single one of our admins that we had existing, hopefully we could get them to be certified, get them to that level of skill that would be what we wanted. But in addition to that, as soon as we launched it, we had a huge company-wide initiative to ensure that all of the people that directly work on accounts, especially the really technical roles, people in onboarding, more than CSMs. CSMs. it became kind of optional. It was heavily encouraged that if you were a CSM, you should get this as well but it wasn't a requirement. Whereas every other technical role became required to go and get this certification. Because the thing is that if we were using this as kind of our benchmark of being successful, and if we didn't have it internally, that would reflect badly just based on how everything was. And so because of that, we also expanded it to all of our partners. So as we had partners that came through with training, as we had partners otherwise, we made sure to make sure they had access to get in and take these exams. So they too could prove that they have the same level of technical skills than anyone else Certified, So we kind of almost pressed it towards kind of the benchmark, you could almost say, of being successful admin uh, of using Gainsight. So we definitely made sure that that audience was targeted as everyone internally, all of the partners that work with us, and the real technical users of our product.
1: Yeah, that's pretty pretty fabulous. And it it kind of frames up, so we know what your audience is, and you've done what any scrappy customer education person would do and say, well, we're going to use this for all these things. And I remember during my, my tenure at Gainsight and, and now during my tenure here at Outreach, you have a lot of technical people internally, and that enablement piece of the pie is weird, right? For, particularly for, you know, technical support people, um, uh, implementation specialists and stuff. They don't really fall always into that sale. Well, they definitely don't fall into sales enablement. We have a customer success enablement piece here, and that they kind of fall out of that. So this was phenomenal because you could say, hey – Go do all this training, right? And now we need you to go do the certification. Were there any uh, carrots on the stick for that if they did complete that? And do they get like a financial reward or a bonus or just a pat in the back and a (laughs)
2: <laughs> How do you do? <laughs> so uh, we, we took kind of a different approach depending on what your role was. Okay. Uh, so as far as it was externally, we did a handful of different kind of promotions to start things off. So the first kind of promotions we did was, hey, look, if you're able to go in and take this, we'll knock a couple bucks off of the initial test-taking fee. Yeah. So we gave people kind of an incentive to make sure they got in quickly. Uh, but then after that, we made it so that we created actual patches that you could sew onto a jacket, put on a backpack or anything. Oh, physical patches. Physical patches. Oh, that's And so anybody, and we kind of applied that across the board then. We started it primarily with customers. But basically the idea is that these patches, once you were completed, we would send you out these patches. So you would have a certified Gainsight administrator patch. And then we gave them out internally as well. Uh, Gainsight was really into patches just in general. And so it just kind of followed the trend of what we were able to do because people already had patches or stickers all over their laptops and backpacks. So we just kind of filled in on that as well. Um, Otherwise, though... Partners were given the incentive of having the certification is going to kind of distinguish you mm-hmm. as a quote unquote preferred The goal was to get all of our partners it so there wasn't technically yeah, super a smart. there's not technically a preferred partner but the thing was that if I was choosing who it was I would rather work with as far as an implementation goes and I had a choice between two partner firms and one of these firms had every single person certified and the other didn't I know what I would choose mm-hmm. and so there was kind of a leverage and a benefit for them within that and then internally it was it became bragging rights <laughs> so quickly. It's, uh, you'll find it amazing. It's customers care about pass or fail is what I found out quickly. It was did I pass, did I fail? All right, I passed. Okay, I failed. What are the sections I could work on? And that was pretty much what I got. Every single internal person what was my score? What percentage did I get correctly? Oh,
1: I'm the best. I'm the best.
2: And then we had a person who got the highest score, and that person bragged to the rest of their team about how they had the higher score, and so someone else went to try and retake the certification because they wanted to see if they could get a higher score than another person. And it became increasingly more competitive than I thought it would be, but in a very safe kind of environment, because someone was like, I got an 81, and someone else was like, really? I got a 79, and it was like, oh, man. And it sparked really interesting conversations about how, okay, well, it's interesting that that's the use case that could potentially be
0: used, and led to some really interesting conversations down the line.
1: That's really cool.
0: There's something about certifications that bring out the competitive side in people.
1: I dig it. They really do. I dig it, and that, that's that's fun. Well, let me ask you one more thing, though. So. While there's the fun in there. There's a the
0: competitiveness in there. Let's talk a little bit about rigor, right? Adam already mentioned this. Uh, so Which I we, appreciate, Dave. In, in your notes here, you have written in the Canadian way with a U, so.
1: Oh, yeah, I try. You know, it strikes
0: try. strikes very close to my heart, and I, uh, I really appreciate
1: <laughs> it. I spent enough time in Canada. It just looks more elegant. <laughs> um, whatever the case, our, uh, the hypothesis we challenged was the only way to run a certification program is by offering proctored exams developed by a psychometrician, with a certificate, a Certificate words are hard again, wow, uh, delivered at the end. So that's commonly offered up as like the right way to do a certification, but is that right for everybody? Uh, so w- what's your thinking on this? How rigorous did you get? And I know you and I had a conversation at one point uh, when, when I visited you and you would say, yeah, I'm developing question banks or I develop question banks and I did all this kind of stuff. Tell us about
2: that, the guts of building out that program and developing the questions and and standing it all up. Yeah, so really the first thing that you need to ask yourself when you're building any kind of certification is what exactly are you trying to achieve out of this, kind of as Dave was saying. There's different ways you can do it. Proctored is always going to be recommended because you want to make sure that someone isn't cheating. So no matter what the version is, Proctored is pretty much almost always a requirement for certification with a capital C, as I like to call it. But whenever you're doing that, there's different levels you can go into there. You can either ask entirely question-based. They are just yeah, yeah. you know, true-false questions, A, B, C, D, multiple-select, single-select. You get basically a large question bank of questions. And then I'll touch on each of these three categories in a second. Your second choice that you have is you can do... Kind of like scenario-based examples. So in there, not only could you have questions of any of the variety I just mentioned, you might also throw a situation at them. Such and such just happened. Your manager showed up and told you you need to do blank. How do you react? How do you resolve that situation? Pretty much anything like that's going to fall under kind of that second umbrella. Like a performance-based or not? Almost performance, because performance would be the third. Because performance would be not only telling them that they have that situation, but then making them do it. So you say not only like, Hey, how do you resolve problem A? In scenario number two, you would say, oh, I need to do blah, 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 while you're typing it all out, basically, in like a question, like a shorter long answer box, essentially, probably familiar to what you would have in college courses or like AP kind of classes. Whereas that final version, it says, this is the problem, the situation that you're dealt with.
0: Yeah. And then
2: you need to go into the software and you need to do it. You have to click the buttons. You have to set that up. You have to build that report, create that workflow that needs to exist. You need to fix the rule that exists, whatever it is you're using. But those are kind of the three different varieties you can look at. And so if those are the three different things that you're kind of looking at that you need to focus on, then that's where you kind of start that discussion of what's the quote unquote right way for me to do it for my company. And then, of course, there's challenges with all three.
0: Yeah. Hey, Evan, one thing I'm thinking about as I hear you say that is, I imagine some of our listeners out here might be saying, well, hey, if I want to certify my admins and I want to give them this very rigorous uh, scenario-based or, or application-based exam, but I have thousands of admins out there, how am I going to grade all of these uh, you know, free, free-form, long answer, here's how I'd react questions? How do you handle that, that inherent tension between uh, rigor and scale?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And that's actually, that's an excellent question and a great way to transition kind of to some of my next thoughts, which is immediately people go to that third scenario. V. I I want to make sure people are showing me they know exactly how to do it. Really? Like, we, did you do that? We did not. Okay. Because theoretically, it's the best way to prove what's going on. Yeah. Not only am I saying I need you to do this, but then you are showing me you actually have the technical ability to go in and do those steps. But there's a lot of downsides, which kind of the second and third scenario, because the first scenario of just asking questions, no freeform questions, can be graded instantaneously. There's that instantaneous gratification of what's going on. I'll touch more on that topic in a minute, because I want to answer your question real quick, Adam, because exactly what you said is one of the big complications with that. If I'm doing freeform or if I'm doing create stuff in there, who is scoring that? At that point in time, if you have thousands of admins, heck, even if you only have 50 people running through taking it in a month, that's 50 people one person or a group of people have to grade. It becomes almost a job to make sure that you're checking in and doing that unless you can come up with some kind of performance or some kind of way you can basically move through each of those different steps to achieve a quick way of grading it. And the thing is, I mean, everyone's taken an exam before. There is nothing worse than that waiting time. The Did I pass? Did I fail? What did I miss on? And so that can add a lot of tension as well, I feel. Uh, additionally, like the whole old song goes, the
0: waiting is the hardest part. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um.
1: We have to have a song in every episode. I love it. Continue. No, you're
2: totally fine. I like it. I like it. Got to keep the fun in. Um, But the other part that you really come and look at those is cost-wise and also whether or not it's scalable because, Adam, as you mentioned, if you have a 1,000 people in that third situation, first of all, how are they doing that? Are you asking Mm -hmm. them to sign into their own instances of your software and work through things? And if you're asking them to do that, what are the security risks and challenges that are with that? If they do anything that exposes any of their customer data, not only are they probably in trouble, but you could be in a whole heap of trouble as well, as well as whatever third party is that's proctoring. You could get a lot of people in trouble for that. So you have to come up with some way you're able to stand up an instance for them almost. So that goes into more of the cost, more of the workflow. So the thing is that with certification, I found bigger isn't always better. If you launch with that super high grade performance, everyone going in, checking and doing everything, that's great and all, but it could potentially slow you down so much that you're going to lose enough momentum and actually building out that certification, then it might not end up being as successful as you want, despite the hours and hours of work you put into it.
0: Yeah, that's that's such a great point. It's really tempting to say let me do the thing that seems most effective from a learning perspective, but I think you're right. It's it's not going to scale and it's not necessarily scrappy for people who are are launching their first certification program. Mm-hmm.
2: Now, I will add a caveat on that is that they would be I mean, that's the the grand pricks of certifications. You know, if you're able to do that, it looks beautiful. It it measures exactly what you want. You're able to prove not only that people are going through and doing it. It's just as your first certification, I think going with Scenario 1, which is the one we actually implemented at Gainsight, um, basically just a lot of questions that exist, that's definitely a better approach for your first stale on certification. And you can move towards some of those other ones because at the same time, a lot of the time in certification you reach levels. For instance, you have a level one, a level two, a level 15, You know, whatever you're gonna have. god uh, Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, like you're just ranking up basically in certifications. But as you're moving through those, you may want to take each of those three scenarios and make each one of those affiliated with a certain level. Maybe level one is just questions, level two is situational, and level three is actual demonstrations and hands-on stuff. But it's kind of, as a first one, it's better to kind of get your feet wet and take almost a crawl, walk, run approach with a lot of this to make sure that you're getting the information you need and people are getting what they want out of it before you're trying to present the Grand Prix of all different kinds of certification for someone's first run through.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's really smart and really wise. One thing that you also mentioned earlier, and, and I think this is something that people will have to think about as they're implementing their certification program, is the, the actual software, the assessment software. So, you know, you, you can talk about specifically the ones you used or, or you can anonymize, but I'm just curious how you thought about that evaluation of getting the right software in place to serve uh, study guides and assessments and learning paths and all that good stuff.
2: Yeah. So there's, you know, much like any kind of SaaS company that exists, there's a ton on the market that you might go with. Uh, Depends on who you choose. One of the more popular ones, the one that Gainsight ended up using and the one that Salesforce also uses is Criterion. And so I can speak to Criterion because I have a lot of experience having worked with them. You essentially stand up more or less their own website and you build out everything throughout the website to post it all in to make it so everything's going to be available. And not only do they have access globally, which is a huge perk to a lot of companies, especially As we look at having a more global industry. But in addition to all of that, they make it so not only can you take it online proctored, they have tons and tons of facilities throughout the whole world where if I prefer to sit in person and take an exam, I could go and do that instead. Yes. So it's really nice to have that versatility because ultimately taking a test is really pressure. There's a lot of pressure that goes on to you and being in an environment that can attempt to reduce pressure on you, whatever test taking environment works best for you is super beneficial. So having the ability to say like, I want to sit on my couch with my computer or saying, I really want to go to a facility where someone is standing by me and I need to be focused so the kids can't bother me halfway through this exam. (laughs) But having that choice is, it's so powerful with something like this. but, yeah, that's that's who we ended up kind of going with. And that's – but, I mean
1: – Were there well, others that you assessed and, and looked at in that, that review process?
2: Yeah, we looked at a handful of them. So I will say uh, during the time that we were selecting a platform in which we could utilize all of the different proctoring, we were also selecting other platforms for use for the company. And I was involved – In all of them, however, I was spearheading a different charge at that time. So because I was more or less fully selecting a different product that was going to be used by the education team at that time, I was involved, but I was not heavily involved in the selection process. So there were others we looked at, and ultimately our decision came down to a handful of them, but we kind of hit a crunch time for us personally. And what we ended up having to do was we had to pick whoever was going to be able to be not only efficient, but able to get us up and running by the deadline we had been given. Because we had a very tight window of time we were trying to execute on this. And of all the different final choices we had, Criterion was the one that was able to get us staged the quickest out of anyone, which ultimately led to our selection of them. Uh, But if you have more time, there's lots of other options. And the other big part in selecting one of these different companies is that type of certification we were talking about you want to use. So if you want to do that Grand Prix of everything, the the beautiful full everything, there's probably one of them that's going to be better for what you need. Criterion offers all of them. So you can do any of them with them. But personally, we just use that first one. And Criterion had us the quickest kind of time to value with that, essentially.
0: Yeah, I think it's also worth mentioning here that a lot of the, the assessment platforms that exist, you know, some of them are kind of built more for, for this use case, like an IT certification or a tech certification, and others that might be a little more grand prix are are built with either higher ed or professional associations in mind. So it, it could be that you are buying too much assessment platform for your need if you're doing a tech certification.
1: Yeah, I, w- I was gonna ask you about cost and I and I know like it can get pricey. One other thing I wanted to mention in there before I uh, do you have numbers that the you know, general ballpark numbers that you can share on on how much did it cost you guys? I don't have
2: specific numbers. That was above my okay. pay grade.
1: Oh, above your pay grade. Okay, oh, cool. I do. Um, yeah, but I'm not going to share them directly. Uh, let's just say that those high end <laughs> platforms are pretty pricey. I mean, they're they're uh, they're around about the cost of an FTE in a lot of cases. So, but the other end of it there's another end of the spectrum And I don't know if you remember this, Evan, it was very early we started looking at certifications before I moved on. And Software Secure was an interesting alternative because whereas Criterion or other products are going to be they're, they're going to be quite a bit expensive, but you're, you're buying quality. You're, you're buying a platform that's going to do it all, and it's going to do it right, and it's going to scale. There's another angle on that. If you wanted to get into the low end and just experiment with this um, and buy something that will scale with you over time, I recommend Software Secure. It, it was kind of a dark horse in, in running, in my assessment, but they were super, super cost effective. And I'll leave it there. If if you want to look at it, look them up. They were acquired. Can't remember the the acquisition. It, it happened after I left. But yeah, good. It, it's expensive, and uh, the business has to be able to absorb that expense and make it worth their ROI.
2: Yeah, another one that we looked at for a while was RP. Now um, they're another one that's that's who
1: bought uh, Software Secure.
2: That's who I thought Could it was. But, I mean, uh, other things that you have to look at in the cost is that whenever you are buying it, it's you are paying for the platform. So you're going to have, you know, a subscription service to said platform. But in addition to that, there is a cost per exam that goes on and happens. Because every time an exam happens that's proctored, someone is proctoring it. That person has to be paid. And so depending on the type of proctoring that happens, there's a different cost that comes out of it. So let's say, for instance, I'm going to use fake numbers here instead of real numbers. But let's say, for instance, it costs you $10 per proctor that's going to happen. If you charge $50 for your certification, you're actually only making $40 per certification. And if tax is required within certain areas, then that can be something that's additionally added on. So your certification might end up costing $56, but you're still only going to be making $40 or potentially less, depending on what's going to go on and happen. And that's just one way. They might also offer another version that costs $10 if you have that full platform, that Grand Prix as we've kind of begun referring to it as. And so that's another thing to look at with this. Different platforms are going to have different fees affiliated with each thing as well. So they're not hidden cost per se, but they're not the cost that you initially think about up front. That's important to think about when you're looking at maintaining the longevity of a certification.
0: So Yeah, you- it's, not, it's not like a, a traditional SaaS
2: license deal or something like that. Correct. Because you, you do have that traditional SaaS license. But after you get that traditional SaaS license, you know, you know you're know you paying $1,000 for a year. Once again, fake random numbers. Yeah. But you know you're paying $1,000 for a year. But in that contract, you will see it costs $5 to remote, $10 to go on site. So you'll be told that. But that's that kind of ongoing cost that you have to keep in your
0: mind. Very good. Yep. So... We've talked about a few different things here. We've talked about the business value. We've talked about the audience. uh, We've talked about the stakes. What we haven't talked about that much yet is the actual content. So I'm curious, um, did you work with a psychometrician as you were developing the different uh, assessment items? How did you decide what content would be on there? Any tips for our audience for writing questions? I'm just really curious about how you actually put all the content together. Yeah, this is uh,
2: this is the bread and butter
0: of certification.
2: <laughs> when it comes to someone that's going to be writing and creating the content of certification, this the question you just asked and all the, the following answers I can give are the most important parts of it. So first of all, yes, I did work with a psychopatrician because it's very important to make sure that you have some standardization of things that are going on. So whenever you're working with anyone, essentially they gave me... A PowerPoint presentation is basically the best way I can explain it, of more or less recommendations that happen in questions. From there, they more or less cut me loose. I wrote every single question that existed, presented it back to them, and then they gave me feedback on what questions and what changes they recommended. There are little things, silly things, that you would not even think about unless you had worked with someone that you know did this professionally, essentially. And those kind of things are, for instance, are you going to put a period at the end of all of your questions, yes or no? What? You can't switch that up. Because if you switch that up, it'll mess with someone. For instance, say you have a question that has a period at the end of three answers, but not the end of the fourth one, a savvy test taker could look at that situation and go, ah, that one doesn't have a period. Because that one doesn't have a period, it's probably the right answer. Or they could say, that one doesn't have a period, there's no way it's the right answer. And your goal anytime you're building out a question is to remove, to get it as close to zero on the needle of a possibility of eliminating any question based on anything but pure knowledge of the product. But because of that, you need to standardize it through the entire exam. So if you choose to not put periods at the end of your questions, you don't have periods at the end of any of your questions. If you have a period at the end of one question, every single question needs to have a period on it. Another crazy one like that is length. Say, for instance, you have an answer that's eight words, and then you have an answer that's 12 words, and then an answer that's three words. Well, one of those things is not like the other. <laughs> and so once again, you're looking at a situation where someone's very easily gonna go, the 12 word one is right. It's the most information available to me. And so anytime you're looking at that situation, a savvy test taker could potentially pass your exam without actually having the qualifications you're trying to test for. And like you said, there's more, but those are just the first two that I can talk about basically. Some of the most absurd that you could there's, pull out of the air. They're definitely some of the crazier ones. But there's there's other things, such as capitalization, you know, depending on what you're capitalizing in a word. If you capitalize a word one time, you know, once again, it all comes down to standardization. If you capitalize the word's rule once in one answer, Every single time you type rule, it needs to be capitalized. Or every single time it needs to be uncapitalized. You need to make sure that standardization is going on always. And don't switch your punctuation. Don't make it a question mark at the end of a question, an exclamation mark. Don't make it a anything else. You know, you want to make sure that every single question looks as, you know, uniform military type as it possibly can. So no one can just be clever and find their way through a question. You're
1: um, making me want to have a psychometrician on the show. It's <laughs> because this. It sounds, so one of the things that kind of makes me feel guilty in retrospect and it shouldn't for anybody is as you're building a customer education function and you're, hey, you're somebody from customer success. This happens all the time. Um, You come in, you start doing stuff. You say, oh, I need to have a pre-test and a post-test. And you're starting to go through all of the, you know, all the things that we know in instructional design. You're learning it, picking it up. When it comes to questions the first time through, I know I've written horrible, horrible questions just based off of those kind of things. Um, But I don't really feel like I should feel bad about that because at first you're just trying to get questions that help people remember things. But the level you're talking about, this is like pro, you know, pro-athlete equivalent of um, somebody who's in customer ad writing just a basic question, right?
2: Yeah, and that's that's ultimately the difference. It's, you know, like, another thing is, like, jokes. Don't joke. You know, oh, you, no, you can't... On. In certification, <laughs> you can't have an answer. So, you know, let's throw out a hypothetical question. It's like, you know... Uh, how many balloons does it take in order to lift up something? You know, like say that's a question you have and your answers are like one, five, ten, and it's, I don't know, hire a clown. You can't have, I don't know, hire a clown as an answer because instead of making it so there were four available answers, you really made it so there were three available answers. Because then
1: that was absurd and nobody would-
2: pick. Exactly. Uh, some I actually talked to a handful of other people that had worked on certifications as well and they gave me some advice of things that I hadn't thought about. One of them, for instance, is like, do not use analogies for a lot of things because, for instance, here in the U.S., sports analogies are really big. But in the rest of the world, they aren't. So if you start making baseball analogies halfway through, that's a question that you have given an unfair advantage, unintentionally, to other people that may not be fans of baseball. So this is a culture bias type Mm -hmm. thing. And, it's, and those are the kind of things that, like, I would have never, in my wildest dreams, thought about any of those things. But because I talked to other people that had done certification, I had talked to people that were basically professionals, psychometricians on this, because I had talked to a handful of people, I learned just obscure random things that you're going to want to avoid whenever you're going in
0: and doing it. Uh, yeah, and so Another another one that I heard was um, simplifying your language as much as, as much as possible for internationalization. So someone was sure. giving an example of a time when they had used, I think... Uh, pilfer on on an exam instead of steal, and steal is the much more recognizable word. I mm-hmm. think this might have been in Peter Mangiak's article in Certification Magazine now that I'm thinking about it.
2: Yeah. No, that's another huge one, though, Adam. It's uh, it's all these things that, you know, we we don't think about because we do it. Uh, another one is acronyms. Every company in the world loves acronyms, like, more than anything. The thing is that if your product actively uses the acronyms in it, it's totally okay for you to use. Okay. But, so for instance, like, if you had something within that was called, you know, let's say you have the rules engine, one of the features that exists within Gainsight. If within the rules engine, it is called RE all the time, then you can put RE. But if RE is what you and the rest of the company use just to talk about it, it should never make its way into your certification. Because as you were saying, Adam, it needs to make sure that it's the vernacular, the language, or the simplest version that's most recognizable by everybody. So you need to make sure that you're cracking down on those things as well to make sure it's as fair as it can be, and you're not adding
0: unnecessary confusion. Gosh, these are the things that you never think about. And, you know, a lot of the time business stakeholders don't think this about, uh, about it. So they're going to come back and they're going to say, how is it taking you so long to write these questions? And you can say, well, do you know how much goes into writing a, an effective certification question? Mm-hmm. I mean, we didn't
2: even talk about the actual act of writing a question. I mean, everyone in our field has probably written a question at one point in time. Yeah. The first two or three are easy. It is so hard to come up with wrong answers that don't seem wrong, especially when you're trying to do it at a level of which it's not ridiculous. You know, it's it, it, it is actually impressive. I, I had no idea that whenever I was writing my questions, I had no idea that I would go in and say like, okay, I know the right answer. Here's the right answer. Here's the wrong answer. Oh, the, the wrong answer is six words, and the right answer was 11 words. I need them to both be within like two to three words. How do I shorten the right answer or increase the wrong answer? And by the time I figured it out, I went, great, I did it. Oh wait, that's only A and B. I still need C and D. Like and that's the situation you look at for like every single question that goes into it. And that's why it can be such a huge overhaul. And I mean like you said, Adam, it's That's not the thing anyone thinks about. Someone thinks about, write a question. How hard is it to write four answers for one question? And it's not hard to do that if I didn't have 50 different rules. Every single one of these questions had to have applied to it. Wow. So how long did it take you start to finish to get through the question bank part of this? Well... So a thing we didn't talk about is a question bank yet, and I'll touch on that briefly and then I'll answer your question, Dave. A question bank, it is recommended that you have a third more questions than what's actually in the exam. So for instance, if you have an 80-question exam, you should have 120 questions that exist, and then they should rotate in. And that goes for security reasons. They should always display in a different order. If you want your answers to display in a different order as well, that's another level that's helpful. Because if someone goes through and goes, number one, B, number two, C, and writes everything down. Some sneaky way that your proctors don't catch, if they pass that to all their other friends, then they're going to be able to go through and possibly do the same thing. Yeah. So that's the thing you got to watch out for. And that's why having those rotating questions, the question banks all going, is super helpful. I, I mentioned that we had a crunch time. And when I say a crunch time, I mean about as crunch time as you can get. I created 120 questions in about two and a half months. Good God. The recommendation is 20 questions a month. Wow. So yeah. it took you that long to sit down and rack your brain and mm-hmm. well, yeah, the, uh, after I talked to the psychometrician, they, they told me how impressed they were that I had come up with 120 questions in roughly a month and a half, two month time. And that's when they told me they see 20 questions roughly a month. But to break that process down, that 20 questions a month is the person writing the questions, writing them all. Then after that person writing the question, after they've written them all going through and having them all analyzed, After having 20 question analyzed, it's them going back and standardizing across all of them to make sure that the hard questions were made easier, the easier questions were made harder, to basically give you the same level of difficulty across everything that's going to exist. And so you kind of go through, you do that. And oftentimes you have to go through multiple different test cycles because if I know questions one through 10 were fine, but 10 through 20 weren't, if I have to fix 10 through 20, they have to go back to everyone and everyone has to re-say, ah, yes, 10 through 20 were great or 10 through 20 aren't great. Um... And I mean, if you run into like getting sections of questions, so say you base your certification off of the different programs available within your software. Let's say you're focused on one section, two sections, and three sections. If section one is the hardest section of your software and it has a dozen questions and all of those questions are near impossible, that sucks. But then question group B, super easy, and you have a dozen questions that are all super easy, in the event that due to the randomization of the exams, I got all of the questions from section B and not all of the questions from section A, I received a significantly easier version of the exam than someone else may have. So even then, across all the different sections, you have to make sure, once again, there's that level of standardization of difficulty.
1: I never, Adam, I don't know about you, but this is like mind-blowing, eye-opening kind of stuff that none of these things... I mean, I've conceptualized, like, okay, well, here's the basis. But all those things are the practitioner's view of
2: what certification really involves. And it's hard. Mm-hmm. And this is if you want it done right. I mean, you could do it to a lesser capacity. High stakes. Exactly. High stakes. But, I mean, if you're in the the large game SaaS world, if you're looking at global companies and such, then I think that if you're focusing on anything that isn't the the high-stake game, then why are you throwing your hand in that certification hat? You're just going to have to go back and redo it. And oftentimes, launching it right the first time is easier than relaunching it multiple times down the road.
1: Sage advice. Okay. Well, do we have any other questions? Or, Evan, is there anything else that that you want to share with the audience that we have on the line here again? our audience is largely people in customer success and customer education in general as an adjunct to that. What are the things might we need to know about if we go and
2: embark on a journey to implement certification? Yeah. I mean, I could talk for hours about the stuff I've learned in the... you got two minutes. Oh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and But uh, in shortening it down in a couple of minutes, if I was to give any final words, you know, a final sign off of advice or anything like that, I would really just say, take your time with it. It's ultimately, it's if you rush through it, you're going to run into problems. Uh, it's it's not easy. Uh, understand that you're going to fail. You're going to fail a bunch of times. You're going to write 120 questions, and a third of those questions are going to be so poorly written or too easy or too hard that they've reached a point in time where it's probably easier to write 40 more questions than it is to fix those 40 that exist. But you just got to try. You just got to keep going back at it and... Don't look at it anytime you get a question wrong or someone tells you that this is a bad question. Don't look at it as a failure of yourself. Look at it as a way you can kind of continue to build on that. Now you have seen something that doesn't work. You need to go and find out another way. The last piece of advice I'll get is sample size groups. If you have, for instance, a team of five or 10 people and you're like, all right, five or 10 people, evaluate these questions and tell me what they are. You need to make sure that one, they're covering either the exact group that you're targeting or, and even in that situation, five or 10 is not enough. You need to make sure you have more like 50 people that are taking these questions because you want to have a good sample size. A dozen people might happen to know something because it's, you know, tribal knowledge. They happen to have that and other groups don't. So get a large sample size. Make sure you take your time and make sure you tell leadership because they're going to crack down on why is this taking so long. Give them an example of one question you're working with, one thing you're doing. Tell them a few pieces of advice. And ultimately, when they say, what can I do to help? Say, give me that SME resource. Give me those super technical resources that know the product better than anyone else. Let me pick their brain for an hour about this topic and I'll at least get an idea for questions that I want. Then I can take the next month, put the pen to paper and turn the ideas they gave me
0: and formulate that into world, just world-class questions. Fabulous. That is amazing. We're so happy to hear about your experience. And I think those are some really um, helpful pro tips for, you know, for someone who's just starting it's really hard to think about all of these things in advance, so amazing. And again, thank you for, for coming on and sharing today, Evan.
2: Yeah, I appreciate you guys
1: having me. All right, let's bring this on home. Okay, so Evan, again, this has been, this has been great. These, this is the kind of conversations that we want to have on C-Lab. Those of you who are listening in, again, if you have expertise in, in this or another area and you want to talk about it, let us know. So here we've had two episodes firsthand talking about certification and all the perils and excitement and strange things that you'll learn along the way. Uh, And with that, let's close out for today. If you want to learn more, uh, we have a podcast website, and that's at customer.education. You're going to find us on all the podcatchers, and I think our host has added a couple more. So once again on Twitter, I am at Dave Darrington.
2: I'm at Avromescu. And how about you, Evan? I, I do have a Twitter. It's not exactly as professional as your guys' is. Um, well, yeah. Mine,
0: mine's <laughs> yeah. mostly just, like, contest entries. I, I, I don't take it very uh, professionally.
2: Yeah, see, no, I made one because all my friends do it. And I was like, oh, well, I guess I have to make one. No, it's uh, at class of hacksaws. Class of hacksaws. Okay. Yeah, yeah, spelling on that's difficult, so good luck.
0: <laughs> <laughs> all right, if you're searching for Evan or if, you're, uh, if you are a professional psychometrician who wants to come on our show and talk about your job then we would love to have you as well Um, but for now thank you for listening special thanks to Alan Coda for our theme music and if this helped you out you can help us out by subscribing in your podcatcher of choice or leaving us a review on the Apple Podcasts aka iTunes store those things really help expose our podcast to other people and to our audience thanks for joining us go out and educate Experiment and find your people.
1: Thanks, everybody. Thanks, guys.